right, good morning to you once more. I want to start with a story about two sisters. Um, we'll, we'll call them seasoned. We won't call them old. We'll just call them seasoned. Um, they, they grew up together, uh, but one uh, lives in Mills River. Uh, the other one lives in Manhattan. And uh, these two sisters reunite after a long time of not seeing one another. Um, the, the sister from Manhattan comes to Mills River, and they they talk it up, they chat up, they eat up, they do all those sorts of good things. And then after dinner, after a, a nice uh, dinner, the, uh, the sisters begin talking about many things. And in the course of their conversation, a debate ensues. That debate is this. Which is a better place to live in the sprawling metropolis of Manhattan? Or shall we say the more pastoral, serene, rural setting of Mills River? Uh, yeah. I, 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 all right. Uh, the debate ensues, right? They go back and forth. They, they talk why, why one place is better than the other. You know, the big lights, big city versus the, the sweet place, the kind place, the, the flooding. Um, <clears throat> sorry, that's probably not funny. I'm sorry. But before the, 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 the sister from Mills River can have a chance to really make her case, her husband, a farmer, pipes in. And he says, definitely the rural spot. Definitely. And then he sort of says kind of wistfully, so long as you have enough land. And they hear that. And the, the conversation continues until the evening concludes and they go home. And um, in the course of the next couple days, uh, the, the farmer whose who's wife uh, grew up in Mills River, he, he hears a rumor from a, a local real estate developer who says, uh, he, he hears that there's an offer on the table that um, for a dollar an acre, you can buy as much land as you want. And he, he quickly goes to the real estate developer and he says, is that right? And he says, yeah, the developer says, you know, it's, it's kind of a distorted, it's rumor. There's some truth to it. But the truth of it is this, um, for one flat fee, we will give you as much land as you can walk on foot in a single day before the sun sets, so long as you make it back to the place that you started from. And he says, are you kidding me? And he goes, I'm not kidding you. So the next morning, this, this older farmer who's been in the business for a very long time gets up early, shows up at the spot, the sun crests over Pisgah Mountain, and what does he start to do? He starts to walk, 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 and he's thinking to himself, oh my goodness, I am going to have all this land, I've just got to walk it. And he gets so far out, probably farther of a, a wider spate of land than he's ever had before, and then he sees that the sun, well, my God, we're not, it's not even noon yet. And so he says, I'm going to walk further. Now remember, this is an older guy. This guy's no spring chicken. So, you know, after he starts walking for a while, he starts to get tired. And he keeps hoofing it and hoofing it and hoofing it. And then he notices, uh-oh, all right, the sun is crested. Um, it's going to start to come down now. And so he realizes, I've come all this way, and now I'm more tired Am I going to make it back to the starting place? And so what does he do? He starts to okay, pick up his pace a little bit and he starts to sweat a little bit and his heart starts to get beating a little bit. And he's thinking to himself, I've got to make it back. I've got to make it back. I've got to make it back. And he sees just as the sun is about to start dipping below the horizon, he sees his starting place. And so he breaks out into a full out sprint and 30 yards from the starting place, he collapses and dies on the spot right there. 30 yards from the starting place. All right, truth be told, this story is a modern adaptation of a much older story by a guy named Leo Tolstoy. 
a short story that was entitled with the question, how much land does a man need? And that story ends with the sentence that I'll end this modern adaptation with. How much land does land man need? All he needed was six feet from his head to his heels. That's all the land he needed. What is that story about? What's Tolstoy doing with that in this wonderfully arable land that is um, uh, the medieval Russian period? It's this idea that there are some things that we can be taken in by that are, that are good things in and of themselves, but then something happens within us that those good things become something rather dangerous to us. Not because of anything in it, but because of what is in us. And in that moment, that story of that farmer, in that moment, he, he, he doesn't realize until it's too late that the idea of wealth, the idea of land as an asset, a good in itself, that something can happen to us whereby we begin to think of it in terms that not even it itself presents to us. And there is loss in the loss of the understanding of what those assets are. He, too late, realized that he needed wisdom more than he needed the wealth he was seeking. We would not do justice to a series on the book of Proverbs, which is all about providing us more than information, but wisdom. We would not do justice to a sermon series on that book if we did not ask the question, what wisdom does the Proverbs have for us in thinking about our wealth, our material resources, those things that we might roughly define as goods that can be good for us and for others, things that can be both enjoyed and deployed. That's what wealth is in and of itself. And if we don't seek wisdom for it, we run the risk of something similar of the metaphorical experience of that farmer in Leo Tolstoy's short story. What we're going to argue today is that wisdom does a great job of appraising wealth, of, coming, of helping us come to terms with its value. And we're going to say it does that in three ways from the several Proverbs we're going to look at. First of all, it's going to declare the value of wealth. Secondly, it's going to clarify the value of wealth. And thirdly, it's going to do us a favor by helping us to know what will preserve the true value of wealth. It will declare its value. It will clarify its value. And then it's out to preserve its value for us. We're going to read several passages. I don't have slides for them this morning, so you'll just have to stare at me. Sorry. But there are several texts from the Proverbs we're going to listen to, and if you're able to stand to hear them, I'd ask that you do so now. Here are many words from the Proverbs about wealth. Listen in. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, it has great wealth. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. 
Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. How much better to get wisdom than gold. To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is maker of them all. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. And after all those principles, listen to the Proverbs prayer. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is the pointed word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Like we said in the very first week, the uh, the editor of Proverbs really didn't care about putting things in thematic order. All of those texts just sort of come at you like scattershot. And my job is to kind of bring them into some sort of coherent thing. And that's what I'm trying to do here. But as you listen to all those Proverbs, I think you can first of all see that the case that it is making is first of all to say this, value, wealth has value. It's out to declare its value. Now, I know that there have been many books written and many political campaigns waged, and yes, many wars fought to determine how a society should be ordered on the basis of what it believes about wealth and material assets. This sermon is not so arrogant as to believe that it will chart for us a economic theory. I'm not going there. I don't need to. The scripture doesn't go there. But what it does say clear and unequivocally is that wealth has value. It's not to be mistrusted out of hand. And the way it makes that case is first of all what it says there in verses 10, 4, and 13, 11. Listen again. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And then in 13, 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gains little by little will increase it. All right. Consider those contrasts that both of those texts are making. A a slack hand versus a hand of diligence. When we, when we get to the sermon on the idea of diligence, um, we'll, we'll hear from a text that gives a very vivid illustration of a, of a wonderful vineyard that appears to everybody that looks on in, in utter negligence, utter neglect. And it is whatever it is sought to do is now it ceased to be able to do. And that is because a slack hand has let it dwindle and therefore it no longer provides. What, what 10.4 is trying to say to us is that So long as you are gaining it carefully, it's not a discouragement to finding wealth. It's actually an encouragement to find it by a certain means. And then there in 1311, beginning out to gain wealth hastily versus little by little. 
Again, the argument there is not against wealth in of itself, but it is to, to warn against the Ponzi schemes, about the, the quick-rich schemes, uh, the, the way in which you might think everything will change overnight. It's not an argument against the acquisition of means. It's an argument for a particular means by which you do so. Why would it make an argument for wealth? Why would the Proverbs be out to declare the value of wealth so long as you obtain it in particular ways? That's what I find in chapter 10, verse 15. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. You're going to hear that strong city metaphor again a little bit later, so bookmark that in your head. But here, in 1015, I think the argument could be made that the proverb is saying this, wealth can be a good thing. That there is something of instrumental value in having means. And I don't need to tell you that, because guess what? It is better to be able to eat than not to be able to eat. Am I right? It is better to be able to have a safe place to sleep than not to be able to have a safe place to sleep. It is better to be able to afford to pay a doctor than not to be able to pay for health care. Am I right? And it is also a better thing to be able to create culture, to write poetry, to paint beautiful paintings of, of waterfalls like you see out in our gallery this morning. To be able to write music, to be able to build and design beautiful edifices, gorgeous architecture, all of those things require time. All of those re things require a certain measure of freedom to be able to invest your mind and your heart in those directions. But if you're working 16-hour shifts, if you're fighting every day just to survive, you don't have the time or the energy or the interest to be able to make culture. And that's why in the last century, a philosopher named Joseph Pieper wrote a book called Leisure as the Basis of Culture. There is no culture apart from having the freedom to create it and therefore having means that don't make you have to worry about how am I going to eat tomorrow is a good thing because that's how culture is made. Wealth has value for all of those reasons. And in that sense, it is a strong city. It is a preferable way. But when it says that the poverty of the poor is their ruin, there's the implication that this way, yeah, means are great for you to possess. It is a thing that you can delight in and enjoy and benefit from. But by implication, it also means that those means are meant to alleviate the ruin of those who are in poverty. I'm hearkening back to the text that we heard from a few weeks ago. Do I have that slide from 1917, Hank? Yeah. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. He will repay him for his deed. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. What good is means for you to enjoy them and delight in them, but also to spread it around. It's like manure. It's not of any good unless you spread it to all the places that's needing it. Keep it all to yourself and all of it does is stink after a while. Wealth has value for all the ways in which we might be grateful for it and enjoy it and delight in it, but also for the ways in which we can alleviate others' suffering by means of our generosity with it. Of course, wealth has value, but it has that value in particular ways. And that's, I mean, that, you, I know you know that. But here's the thing. We, we believe that and then we don't. Yes, wealth has value. But unfortunately, 
more often than not, we assign a particular value to it that maybe is a distortion of its value. And that's why the, the Proverbs are here not only to declare wealth has value, it's also here to say, I need to clarify its value. Because yes, it may bring delight, and yes, it can deliver others from certain difficulties, but unless you're aware not only of the, the assets to our assets, unless you understand the liabilities to them, you might find yourself in the same predicament as that farmer in Leo Tolstoy's short story. So let's talk briefly about the liabilities that come with having wealth. Some of those liabilities are external in nature of, of stuff that comes at you by virtue of you possessing it. Um, the first is that the greater the wealth you have, the, greater exposed, the more exposed you are. The more you run the risk of something befalling you that you would not ordinarily seek out. So you heard him say in, in chapter 13, verse 8, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. Let me put it in a far more modern terms. Kids, um, who is more likely to get beat up on your street? Um, the kid who is just sort of uh, nicely playing Frisbee in the backyard with somebody else or the kid who just made 50 bucks on the lemonade stand at their street corner? Who's more likely to get beat up? That one, because everybody wants that 50 bucks. They're more exposed. The more they have, the more their resources become of great interest to others. The more wealth you possess, the more you're exposed to certain risks such that you end up paying all sorts of things. Just ask doctors who have to pay malpractice insurance. The more at your disposal, the more you're exposed to risk. That's one of the external liabilities. The second external liability comes in what you get to witness about human nature in the course of either having it or not having wealth. Listen to what it says in chapter 14, verse 20. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. And if they could do quotation marks in Hebrew, which they didn't, they'd probably put friends in quotation marks. Because it is a human inclination, sad to say, from time immemorial, that if you are without means, then you are most likely without respect. You are kicked to the curb in someone's mind, if not in action. You are seen differently. And in the same way, if you, have, if you are a person of means, you are also seen differently. Such that a lot of the kindness that comes your way may only be another form of sticky, nasty ingratiation. Because the rich have many friends. And whereas, if whether, where you are on that spectrum, you, you see that kind of thing happening in, in real time in human nature and you get to be a witness of that nasty stuff and it all boils down to what you have or don't. That's an external liability. But lest we think that the liabilities of assets are all about what comes from without, there's a lot of stuff that happens from within. The internal liabilities, I find three according to these passages. The first one is an addiction to it. What it says in 23.4, do not toil to acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. In other words, there is something in us that can lead us to kill ourselves in order to get what we think is going to make us happy. And, and what good is a life if wealth, if you're killing yourself to get it? St. Augustine said, the more you get, the more you will want. 
It's just the nature of how we operate unless wisdom is informing what we get. There's an addictive quality to it. And because it's an addictive quality to it, there's a danger therein. In 28:25, you heard them say, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Why is it that in marital counseling, a lot of the times the counsel has to do with how the two spouses have differing views about how to use their resources? Why is it that when I sit down with a premarital couple, we devote at least one session to talking about what will you do to make sure you are on the same page about those things? Because it's not about the money. It's about the trust and the respect and the priorities that all underlie it. And it can drive a wedge, a real wedge in the kind of pursuit of it or in the kind of priorities you use it for. There's an addictive quality to it. There's a danger of relationship in it, but there's also, that's, both of those are true because there's a delusion in it. And here we go back to that metaphor that you heard earlier in chapter 18, verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. There's a lot of good in wealth. There's a lot of good at having the assistance to be of assistance to you, your family, and those you love. But there is something that can happen in our minds the more we possess that makes us think we are impervious to certain things that are just around the corner. And then when they come, our ideas are shattered. And sometimes we wonder then, why did we give so much effort to pursuing that which really cannot be a source of ultimate security and refuge? The very first novel I read that I ever wanted to was not until after I graduated from college. And it was by a guy named Mark Helprin. And he wrote a book called A Winner's Tale. And one of the authors, one of the characters in that story says this, little men spend their days in pursuit of such things like wealth and fame and possessions. I know from experience that at the moment of their deaths, they see their lives shattered before them like glass. I've seen them die. They fall away as if they've been pushed and the expressions of their faces are those of the most unbelieving surprise because they find themselves realizing that there was an addictive quality to it and a dangerous quality to it and a delusional quality about it. But if you're not mindful of it, you are susceptible to. Now, I'm about to show you a clip that might feel like it is from way left field and it is from of all stories the Lord of the Rings, from the first installment. The kids are going, yes. But there's a moment, if you know that story, that there's a ring of power that corrupts everybody that touches it. And Bilbo Baggins on his 111st birthday is about to depart the Shire, but he's going to leave that ring behind. And Gandalf, his wizard friend, is there to talk him through that whole leave the ring behind. It's really kind of dangerous. So look at what ensues between them in this very brief encounter just before Bilbo leaves the Shire for the last time. Watch. There are many magic rings in this world, Bilbo Baggins, and none of them should be used lightly. It was just a bit of fun. Oh, you're probably right, as usual. You will keep an eye on Frodo, won't you? Two eyes. Yes. As often as I can spare them. I'm leaving everything to him. What about this ring of is that staying too? Yes, yes. Say an envelope over there on the mantelpiece. No. Wait, it's... 
Here in my pocket. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that old time? I think you should leave the ring behind, Lumon. Is that so hard? Well, no. And yes. Now it comes to it. I don't feel like parting with it. It's mine. I found it. It came to me. There's no need to get angry. Well, if I'm angry, it's your fault. It's mine. Mine. It's been called that before, but not by you. What business is it of yours when I do with my own things? I think you've had that ring quite long enough. Do you want it for yourself? Come on, Baggins! Do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. Two minutes and 24 seconds of brief storytelling um, confirms the very thing that I've been trying to talk about for the last few minutes. It's mine. It's my precious. It, it has that addictive quality to it. And these two who are friends and have been friends for who knows how long, hundred, uh, decades, suddenly this thing has come between them. Yeah, it has a dangerous quality to it. And, and surely enough, why? Because he's deluded that he needs this so much that it is his power I know it's a fantasy, and I know that it could be applicable to any number of things that you and I might call idols, but surely, friends, the things that we have are metaphorically represented in what that ring is. They can do that kind of work in us because they have that sort of liability to them, not because of what's in it, but because of what's in us. We have to see those liabilities. We also have to see wealth on a scale of value. Everything we have, we ascribe a certain value to, and we put it somewhere on a spectrum of what we think is really important. And so the stuff that you had from your grandmother that, that she made and handmade and has stood the test of time, that stuff you, you have a higher value for than what you found at Walmart yesterday. You assign a scale of value to things, and the Proverbs is here to assign a scale of value to our wealth by arguing that there are some things that are even more valuable than wealth. And according to 1616, one thing is more valuable, namely wisdom. How much better to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding it is to be chosen rather than silver. What good is wealth if you're not wisely using it? I, I know the, the myth out there is that if you win the lottery, you necessarily go into bankruptcy because you, you spend it all. But actually the, the social science research on people who win the lotteries discover that how you were before you got the money has a great deal to do with how you are after you get it. So if you were foolish about money before it comes your way and then it comes your way, yep, you probably end up spending it all and your life is worse than when it started before you had it. But if you applied a certain measure of prudence and, and careful forethought into what you have before it comes, Lord willing, it will that increase. So the money amplifies what's true of you. 
unless you bring wisdom to it, the wealth is of no consequence. Wisdom has of greater value than wealth, but so too does righteousness. And so you heard in 11, riches don't profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. A few weeks ago, we let the Proverbs define what it means by righteousness. Righteousness is not just being nice. It's not just being clever. It's actually acting with integrity. It is doing right so far as you can, doing right by another in the fear of the Lord. It is being willing to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others. And the Proverbs are saying that kind of righteousness, that commitment to integrity, that guidance by justice, that willingness to be disadvantaged, that will always be of greater value than whatever is on your AGI. It has that value. And like you heard at the beginning of this service, Johnny Cash once wrote a song or sang a song about cash. If you missed it, I'll remind you of the chorus. It goes like this. How many times have you heard someone say, if I had his money, I could do things my way. But little they know that it's so hard to find one rich man in 10 with a satisfied mind. We may know the value of wealth. And we may hear over and over again, it clarified, it's true value clarified, but therein lies the question, how and why does that sense of its true value prove so elusive to us? Why do we hear it and not hear it? That's where we get the third and last thing I want to talk about today. Yes, the Proverbs declare its value. Yes, the Proverbs are out to clarify its value. But most of all, the Proverbs are here to preserve in our minds its true value a true value that gets so lost in the shuffle. How do you and I keep the true value of wealth preserved in our mind? It offers two texts to help us go there that are both actions that that reflect an understanding of that true value. The first one comes in the very first text you heard. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. In other words, give a precious portion of what comes your way by way of your labor and give it unto the work of the Lord, whatever you believe that to be, whether it's part of the church or outside of the church, wherever you see his work at work, give to that. Give a precious portion of your labor unto that end. And then secondly, in 1421, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. This is sort of the sermon on wisdom for the weekend, week two, from several weeks ago. This is, you don't talk about wealth unless you're also talking about wisdom for caring for the poor. This is calling for a generosity that has to be strategic and careful and methodical and personal. That's true generosity. And to preserve your sense of its true value... You honor the Lord with what you have and you're generous to the poor. And at this point, if you're like me, then the first thought that is crossing your mind right now is, all right, how much? How much is enough? What will be kind of in the ballpark of what God likes for me to be honoring the Lord and being generous to the poor? At which point the Proverbs might humbly but clearly say back to you, that's the wrong question. 
because it's also the wrong heart, because it's also the wrong motive, because there is no calculus. The Old Testament speaks of a tithe, of, of giving 10%, and that certainly is a, is a great way to kind of frame up the way you're thinking, but, but, that's, but that's not like 10% and no more. Never go there. Never go any farther than that. You don't need to. That's, that's not the spirit of the instruction. Jesus himself says different things to different people about their wealth. He says to the rich young ruler, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and follow me. To Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half of what I have. I'm going to restore what I've lost, or what I've defrauded others. And Jesus says, I'm good with that. I'm down with that. He says different things to different people. So if you're looking for a percentage, if you're looking for a formula, if you're looking for a calculus, you will come up empty. So what's to do? Motive is everything. And motive comes down to one other thing that has to exist on your scale of value. We said more valuable than wealth was our wisdom and our righteousness. There's one still other thing that's even of greater value than wisdom and righteousness, and it's what you heard in chapter 22, verse 1 and 2. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. What is, of, what is of even greater value than wisdom? What is of even greater value yet reflective of righteousness? It is the knowledge that your socioeconomic status means nothing to the Lord. Not in terms of your measure. Not in terms of your value to him. That material wealth is nothing compared to a good name. A sense of identity that is rich and deep, that provides you strength and refuge, a sense of an identity that cannot be taken from you. A good name, that's of even greater value than a good bank account. And the Proverbs is out to say, those things are of immeasurable worth to us. That's its argument. But there was someone else who not only argued for that, but for proved it. And it is the one who hung on the cross. In, the, in Jesus, the Lord is saying to us, your net worth nets you nothing in the eyes of God. Your net worth accounts for nothing and compensates for nothing in your desire to have God's favor. Jesus comes to us and says unto us at his cross, you know what? I don't care if you're rich or you're poor. You all equally need why I'm doing for you in that moment. Jesus in his gospel is the great leveler. But in that same moment, he's also saying that it's by my cross that I am the basis of an even greater inheritance. What comes to you through me will be greater than anything you ever get from grandma. Why do we need to believe that? Why do we need to trust that? Why does that have to be operative in thinking about preserving the true value of our understanding of wealth? Leo Tolstoy, who was the author of that short story I told at the beginning of the sermon, he wrote widely about Jesus. He was birthed and nurtured in a culture literally built by Christianity in Russia. But another Russian author of his day named Maxim Gorky said this about Tolstoy and Tolstoy specifically his opinion about Jesus. Tolstoy, oh, 
He admired Jesus, but he hardly loved him. There's a way of understanding Jesus that could be just like Tolstoy. Your admiration of him can be of a kind that is totally lacking in love for who he is. But friends, if you're going to honor the Lord with your first fruits, and if you're going to be generous to the poor, it's going to require more than admiration of who Jesus is. It won't be sustainable. And in time, it will actually make you resentful. Impressive man. I'm not doing that. Unless love be what compels us, then honoring the Lord when it hurts and being generous to those who have nothing, unless love compels it, we might start that way, but we won't finish that way. If, however, you and I would see Jesus on that cross as Paul helps us see Jesus in 2 Corinthians 9 when he says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. If you and I would see Jesus divesting himself of everything that he had, even his life, that we might be invested with something that can never be taken from us and that is better than anything we will ever have, when we see in him love, then we will find a reason and a motive for an abiding gratitude for what we receive. And when we are grateful, we will, metaphorically speaking, sort of open our hands with thanksgiving. And when you open your hands about anything that you have, you're at the same time sort of releasing your grip on them. So that at the same time you're being grateful for what you've been given, you are also, in some sense, offering it with generosity to those who may need it. To see him with that love is to compel both gratitude for what we've been given and generosity with it where we can and where we should. Not to prove something to him. Not to gain something from him. Not to pay him back for what he's done. We can't. But to demonstrate that we get him and to believe that he loves us and that that love is everlasting. Even when we fail at generosity even when we fail at gratitude. The motive must be love. How do you know if that motive has sort of come to roost in the deep places of your heart? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, when speaking of charity towards the poor, said this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, and amusement is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it is too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our commitment to giving excludes them. A mark of knowing that his love for you is sure and of greater value than anything else that you find of value is for it to pinch a little. But that's not the goal of it. The goal is not to be pinched. (laughs) The goal is not to feel uncomfortable about how much you're giving away for the sake of the poor or for the good of the Lord's work. The goal of it, well, let me let you appeal to Lewis's friend, Tolkien, and once again, from Gandalf the wizard, who 
in a conversation with the fellowship, explained how humanity does such a great job of mucking up Middle Earth when he said this. It is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the help of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. That's the goal. The goal of preserving that sense of wealth's true value. The goal of honoring the Lord with our first fruits of our produce. The goal of being generous with the poor is that we might uproot the evil in the fields wherein we are set wherever we can. That's the goal. It's not about a percentage. It's about a purpose. It's about a goal. And wherein we see ourselves privileged to be part of that kind of kingdom work is the degree to which we are compelled to make use of our means and to delight in them with gratitude and offer them in generosity. I have no formula for you. I've given you lots of principles. I'm going to end this sermon with where the Proverbs ends, the Proverbs about the theme of wealth, not with a principle, but with a prayer. Hear it again one last time. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I send you back to your father who is in heaven, who sent his son that you might inquire about how he might make sure that you live neither in poverty nor in riches, that what you have might be seen as a gift in which you might delight and enjoy properly. But in the same time as you open your hands in gratitude, you also open them with generosity that they might be available to others too. He knows. And he is worthy of our trust and our love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.